my guest this week is one of the old guard in a way. He had some great results in the laser back in the day, sort of highlighting really, having a highest world ranking of 33, third at the under 21 world in 2011, and also that meant he came second at the under 21 Europeans as it was sort of a combined event in La Rochelle that year. Coming 12th at the senior Europeans in 2013, and his final race in a laser, in fact, was winning the national championships at Mounts Bay in 2015. I'm, of course, talking about Martin Evans. Martin, how are you? Yeah, very good, thanks. Very good. Uh, hopefully doing a lot more sailing now. Lockdown's starting to lift again um, in all sorts of different boats. Not the laser. Uh, as you said, last time I raced, that was 2015. So, um, yeah, I haven't really touched one. I've been on one a couple of times since, but, uh, yeah, not a lot. But, yeah, all good otherwise. What was the sort of the main reason why you stepped away from the laser in 2015? Uh, the, I think the main, well, my, my sort of specialism in the laser, which we know, uh, was when it was just really windy, windier the better. And I, I always used to think that if there was a, if there was an event where you could, you know, fabricate the, the wind speed and it was just a group of lasers on the water and it, you could just turn up the fans and it would get windier and windier and windier until it was like a last man standing thing. I always used to think that I could beat anybody at that and I would be the last the last guy standing. So I used to love it in the breeze, struggled in the light virtually all of the time. Uh, so that was one of the things, is that I, I was quite aware that my game wasn't rounded at all. Like I had a super strength of pace in the breeze and I, I was absolutely terrible at times in the light. Uh, so that sort of obviously bothered me and there was a lot of work to do on the light stuff. Um, and then on top of that, I sort of slightly fell out of love with it a little bit. Um, I, don't, I don't really know the reason for it, I'd say. I think I just, I spent a lot of time sailing the laser sort of in and around university as well, doing that classic balancing of the social life. Um, when you're a youth especially and sort of going on nights out and having a great time uh, around uni, that's obviously a bit of a balance that a lot of people end up dropping out around the age of 18. Um, I stayed on for all of the university and then ended up dropping out at about 23. Um, so there's a bit of that. And then I think at the same time, the likes of, uh, of Elliot and Lorenzo um, and Mickey were all sort of nipping at my heels and then started beating me. And it, it just comes to a point where you've got to sort of really ask yourself the question whether you have the minerals to be able to carry on and, and you know, beat those guys again. Um, and those guys, you know, you could see that they really wanted it. And, and, and look where they are now. They're having incredible results. So I knew it would have been a tall order. I think, well, I was I think I was pretty honest with myself and said that at that stage then I wasn't good enough. Did I have the motivation to be able to get good enough and get better than these young guys who were coming through who were clearly, you know, really hungry for it? And I think ultimately the answer was no. And so... It was a bit of sort of personal honesty. And looking back, you know, and even now still, I look back and, and I sort of some parts of me are quite sad that I did step away. But at the same time, I'm quite content with the idea that being honest with myself, I probably didn't have the motivation to, to really see it through and, and try and get to a place where I would be seriously contending for an Olympic spot. Yeah, I mean, that's a great sort of self uh you know, assessment of yourself. It's a tough decision, I'm sure, when you sort of decide to, to ultimately hang it up. But I, I do love your idea of, you know, having sort of maybe some fans and 
just turning them up and making it windier as it sort of the racing goes on. I'll be definitely up for that. Yeah, if, if someone comes up with that event, I'll make a comeback. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's sort of, you know, 10, 15 years, there'll be some sort of technology that will be able to sort of cope with that and have sort of like a, a total wipeout style <laughs> sort of Ninja Warrior um you know, sort of competition or something like that. I don't know, but yeah, you, you see those freestyle windsurf events in a swimming pool <clears throat> indoors. Yeah. Just need a bigger pool and some bigger fans. Yeah, or maybe just put a dome over Weymouth Harbour and put some fans in that, and just have sort of consistent breeze all the time. Yeah, it'd be ideal. Although you can almost get it naturally on, on a winter in Weymouth when you get a booming westerly. It's pretty much last man standing anyway. Yeah. Been out in a few of those. Oh, that reminds me, actually. I mean, I remember when I you know, got selected for the youth squad for the first time, you messaged me saying, I hope you like rabbit runs and hypothermia. And that, <laughs> that just then, what you said, brought that memory back of, you know, just ultimately the wind just booming basically every day on a winter youth squad. Yeah, yeah, that's why the bricks are all traditionally so good in, uh, in the breeze because we just used to go out of Weymouth. If it was an easterly, we'd do rabbit runs all the way to the cliffs and sail back in. And if it was a westerly, we'd go down into the cliffs and rabbit runs back. Um, so that was that was our forte, really, is going fast in a straight line when it's breezy. Um, and the hypothermia thing, I was actually talking to somebody about this the other night when I was doing some coaching at my, my local club. And I was a bit chilly. And, you know, it's like I was wearing full super warm suit and it's May. So I shouldn't have been chilly at all. I'm thinking how my tolerance has changed because back in... Back in those days when we were doing youth squads and, um, and development squads at Weymouth, you, it's amazing the sort of uh, awareness you have of how cold you can get before it becomes unsafe for you. You know, like daily, we used to just be on the border, you know, on the edge of hypothermia pretty much every single day sailing, but just about warm enough that you could sort of carry on and keep your focus and not get yourself in trouble. And if we let ourselves get that little bit too cold, then maybe it would have been a problem. Um, so my tolerance for the cold used to be incredible, uh, but now I'm just a, a wuss and I'm, I'm freezing all the time at the moment. <laughs> I, I sort of, in the same mindset, I remember looking back in the day of, you know, I wear less sort of in the winter than what I am now, you know, in, in May. And it's, uh, like you said, the tolerance is, just changes. But, yeah, I'd have skin, skin showing year round, but not yeah, more. Try and get the try and get rid of the tan lines is, was the hard part back in the day yeah but so how did you get into sailing so do you come from a sailing background or um a little a little bit my so my my granddad got me into sailing um so he he's been a sailor all his life um i don't think he's done a great deal of racing but he did a lot of cruising and he used to sail his boat to the to across the channel to france and go to spain for holidays and whatever um, and then my parents met through being Sea Scout instructors, so they sort of knew how to sail, um, but mainly just, I, I suppose, came together through, through a bit of a love for the sea. Uh, and then my granddad bought me a, um, a mirror dinghy, uh, which I first sailed in Swansea Marina, uh, which is where he had his boat. So it was literally in the marina, you know, around the pontoons and stuff, uh, with him, uh, myself, and my sister. Uh, my sister carried on sailing as well, but uh, she was just like a fair weather sailor, whereas I sort of took to it a bit more. Um, but the mood dinghy was just like, a, it was basically rotting as we went, I think, and it was sort of held together by loads of layers of paint. Uh, 
I still remember my my granddad was like, amazing. He must be like six, six five, maybe even bigger. Uh, fairly big waistline, and his hands are like King Kongs. So they're just he's just big all over. And uh, so I sort of can't really imagine him sitting in a mirror thinking. These days, obviously, as a kid, you don't realise that. You don't realise the sort of significance of it. But I sort of remember him, me and my sister, sailing around in Swansea Marina, and him, like, pulling the tiller towards him, which was sort of pinning me against the side of the boat every time I sort of hit that too much. I sort of feel that tiller in my stomach now, <laughs> getting it sort of pinned in and trying to bear away. Um, but, yeah, I started there. Uh, and then at the time, I actually lived in, in Redditch, which is... Um, in the Midlands uh, and started sailing. I took that mirror dinghy from Swansea back to Redditch um, and started sailing the mirror there just with my dad um, on Arrow Valley Lake, which is Redditch, where Redditch Sailing Club is, which is tiny. You know, people always say, like, there's always some bit of a competition of who has the smallest club or whatever. Um, And Redditch has got to be up there as one of the... It's pretty small and there's a couple of islands in the middle. I think it's like 27 acres or something, so it's, there's not a lot of room to play with. Uh, but start sailing that mirror there, my dad, um, then sort of upgraded by booting my dad off and sailing it single-handed. And you know, in the mirror, you can you can step the mast forward, so you can have it single-handed just for the main. So I did that for a bit, and then when I was eight, my um, granddad then bought me a topper so I could you know properly sail by myself and start getting into junior racing. Yeah. So yeah, it's all. Yeah, sailing, sailing family uh, in a way, but not sort of any racing pedigree. And then um, it's interesting what you said though about you know Redditch being such a small lake. The amount of you know top sailors that come from these small lakes, you know, mentioned it before. It, it's amazing, really. What what do you put that down to? Um, I don't. You hear it all the time in all different places, all different types of places where there's like fierce current or it's just super shifty or, you know, non-ideal racing conditions, basically. Any of those sorts of clubs, you always hear people say in the line, oh, and if you can sail here, you can sail anywhere. And people for sure used to say that at Redditch. Um, I don't think I've put it down to the venue, although it was insanely shifty all the time and there wasn't much space, so you had to do a lot of boat handling to get, get yourself around the lake. Um, I don't think it's specifically the venue. I just think that there was like a reasonably good group of similar people at the club when I started who, you know, there was a group of people who are a couple of years older than me who it's really easy to sort of chase them down and, and that's just what's, what that's just what pushes you on, I think. It's just those little stepping stones of being that guy who's a year older than you and then setting your sights on the guy that's maybe two years older than you and, and so on. So I think it was just more that it was quite an active club for juniors rather than it being specifically about the venue. No, so I think you've hit the nail on the head, really. Uh, great summary there, because I think, especially in the Midlands, you have a lot more access to big cities and there's a lot more people that are, you know, so you do get that, that more mass of people that are got the same mindset in, as you, in a way. Yeah, I remember, I don't think I've ever actually met him, but there was a guy called Rick Peacock who came from Redditch, who was, at the time, I think he moved away literally when I got there and he was in the top of national at the time and I wanted to be in the top national squad um, but that was like when I got there that was like a sort of claim to fame from the club so it was a pretty small club but they had this kid in the, in the national team and then so they were quite proud of that and 
good job of then supporting other kids to then get in zone squads or whatever else and then eventually national squads and other things. Um, but he, uh, he went on to sort of race with 49 in the Olympic squads and then I think he races an 18-foot skip now maybe. I'm not sure what he's doing. I don't think, yeah, like I said, I don't think I've actually met him but I just know his name from back when I was eight years old and someone said, oh, this guy's in the top national squad. And, and that sort of inspire you to sort of follow in his footsteps then? Uh, no, well, not not particularly actually, just because I didn't know him. Um, yeah. So, but I think it did inspire the club to sort of keep trying to get more kids through the squads, uh, which is only good for me. What would you What would you say when you sort of got into the laser sort of system? Do you do four point sevens as well? Do you get do all three classes? No, when I when I transitioned, I went straight from the topper. Um, it was a time where the year I transitioned was the year that was the first. 4.7 squad um, but at the time all of us top of sailors sort of looked down on it a bit because we already thought we were better than all the 4.7 sailors and our sail was already bigger and what have you so we just jumped straight to the radial So what was that sort of sense of when you sort of rocked up at an event sort of radio events for the first time was there a lot a big difference because I mean from a pure junior class in the topper to suddenly racing against you know the female Olympians must have been quite a big jump. Yeah, I I sort of remember not being faced too much by it at the time. Um, it, I I I think I was quite confident as a kid. I was quite happy to just race against anyone, not really knowing who they were or not really caring who they were, and just having a go at it. And um, I remember it being really hard when it was windy because uh, I when I transitioned, I was only. I moved from the top of the radio when I was 13. So I was only 50, I don't know, 55 kilos or something, uh, which is relatively light. It's, you know, not un, not unusually light for a radio, but being not very strong as only a 13-year-old as well, I think it was suddenly quite a big boat to handle. So I remember, I mean, I think that was probably the last time I was good in light winds, actually. I remember doing quite well in some light wind races and, and, and struggling big time in the breeze. Um, which then probably leads to a reason why I ended up being so good in the wind because I really have to focus on sort of dealing with that by being smaller than everybody else but still trying to compete. Yeah, and I suppose then if you just sort of set your training sort of regime to really focusing on the strong winds, the sort of light winds today, did that take more of a back seat? Uh, yeah, possibly. Not intentionally for sure, but it, yeah, it sort of ended up happening that way, I guess. And you said that you sort of weren't phased much. I know a lot of people when they, you know, step up from say a radial to a standard or four point seven to a radial, they, you know, have have some nerves there. You know, it's a it's a bit of a jump. What would what were you doing that made you just not phased? Or I think the way I saw it is that the people I transitioned with were my direct competition, as is the case for loads of youth sailors. You know, you're always looking at people in a similar age group or in the squad with you or whatever else. So the people I jumped up with were my competition and I'd want to beat them for sure. And then if you beat anybody else, that's a bonus. Um, and so if you beat like the, the guys who are in the youth squad a couple of years older who have been there a while, that was great. And I remember we did a Felix Stoke qualifier. I don't know when it would have been, ages ago. Um, and Laura Baldwin was there. And I remember... I remember like pinching her off on the line and thinking that I was, you know, that, that was a big sort of 
bonus thing for me to come in and say that I, you know, outperformed this Olympic lace sailor on the start line. Uh, but yeah, I think they were just sort of bonuses. And as here you go, got a, you've got a guest at your door, obviously, Martin. Yeah, uh, I said I said before that the dog would definitely bark if someone <laughs> knocks at the door. Like you were saying just before your dog started barking about pinching out Laura Baldwin um, on the start line. Yeah, so I was just, just saying that I think I just wanted to be the guys who I knew were the same age who sort of, I, I suppose you come to think are the ones that really matter. And I suppose long, long term they probably do. And anything else is a bonus. And so, yeah, to come in and beat some older youth squad kids or, or Laura Baldwin, who at the time was going to the Olympics, was sort of pretty cool cool thing um, so I guess that's why I wasn't too phased because uh, I was sort of ticking the boxes that I wanted to that I wanted to tick among my peer group yeah that's sort of quite a good way of looking at it and sort of just breaking down the fleet in a way to you know your sort of group that you've moved up with and just sort of trying to beat them to begin with them yeah yeah and, and, and that sort of that system carries through I think for quite a long time um, especially with the way the events are structured and the squads are structured, you know, you always have your. I don't remember what it was. I think you have the under seventeen world champion or whatever, which is a category that's broken down from the the under nineteens in the radio, or it was at the time for me. Uh, and then you've obviously got your under nineteens, and you go into the full rig, got your under twenty ones, and then you know, then you go senior after that. And you know, when you're under twenty one, you're a senior as well. But. Uh, but you've still got that little breakdown where you're trying to beat the guys around you, knowing that ultimately with Olympic cycles, people are going to start dropping out uh, for the next cycle and the cycle after that, and you are probably going to be sailing around with the guys who you, you came up with, just of course you're, you're Robert Shine, in which case you just keep going forever. <laughs> yeah, just keep going until well, <laughs> until you want to stop, really, with, with yeah. Robert Shine. And where would you say sort of you were at your best performance? Was it in radials or standards? Uh, I think I don't know, I did pretty I did pretty well in the radials. Uh, or it's hard. I was obviously definitely a better sailor in the standard, and just having more experience and more time. So probably the standard, but things things certainly came easier in the radial. Um, Probably, obviously, because the fleet is less uh, less competitive because it's youth level for the guys rather than all these all these people who have been around for years campaigning and maybe have done Olympics or whatever else. You obviously don't find that in the under nineteen radial fleet. Um, so things came a bit easier. Um, when I was when I was fifteen, I came second at the under nineteen worlds in the radial um, in New Zealand, which was like a massive massive event for me. Um, I sort of went there with no real idea of where I'd come and expected to do that well. Uh, and I remember coming in after one of the days racing and saw I was second on the on the score sheet and suddenly thought, oh my God, like, this is this is pretty serious. Uh, and then, yeah, eventually managed to convert that to, to the second overall, um, which was pretty cool. Uh, so yeah, those, those events all came quite easy to me. Um, just... No idea why, really. Like I said, I just wasn't really expecting much and just turned up and everything went well. Uh, that one, uh, Andy Maloney won it, um, who is currently leading the Finn Gold Cup as we record this, and is America's Cup winner now. Uh, and then 
Tom Burton, I think, was third. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, all know who he is. Uh, Sam Meach was there. Uh, there are a few big names who are currently like how they're doing great things with the lasers now. They're all around at that time. And so for me, to you know, those names have obviously done really well. But to to be amongst those guys who were all older than me by a couple of years at least at the time was wicked. Do you look uh, back at that result and sort of go, oh, well, they've achieved, you know, they're right at the top in the standard fleet now, uh, or the Ilka Seven fleet now. Do you sort of look at that and say? You know, if I sort of just pushed through it, I could have been there as well. Um, not really. The, the, that's, they, they sort of started making the jump. I think probably because they're a little bit older and started making that jump up to seniors earlier than me. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's very easy to look at that and say that I was better than so and so back then. You know, I could have been the same as them now, but it just goes back to that honesty. I think at the start and saying. That, I think they probably wanted it as much as the likes of Elliot and Lorenzo and Mickey all do now, um, consistently throughout throughout that journey. And I, I sort of tapered off a little bit. So I sort of, yeah. On the one hand, you look back and think, oh, that was pretty cool to be amongst those names. I wonder what it would have been. But at the same time, realistically, could it have been? I'm not sure. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Moving into sort of the standards we're talking about at the, at the top of the podcast about the 2011 sort of Europeans and Worlds at La Rochelle, the under-21s that is, where you, you medalled. Um, and Mills Barton, Alex Mills Barton, sort of finished one place in front of you. Were you sort of quite close together because you were similar in age, weren't you? Yeah, so he's... Uh, what are we, we, so he's a year above me in school and sailing years. But he's, he's got a late birthday, he's in August, so he's, he's less than a year older than me. Um, but yeah, we were... I mean, we were fairly recently best best men at each other's weddings, and yeah, his, his best mate. We'll, we'll always be good mates just for all of the sort of the bonds we have through sailing. Um, and there was a time where we, we essentially through the youth program. Um, we, I didn't go to uni for a couple of years. I, I delayed it um, whilst I was doing A levels, and whilst he was sort of, I suppose you'd say at the time gap gearing, but it, it was just you know he was full time sailing basically. Uh, we didn't have enough money to go proper full-time sailing, so we just used to do this week-on, week-off thing, and we're all through the, the winters. We would, we'd work for a week at home. We were both lucky enough to have somebody who would give us flex. I did filing at a, a law firm, uh, and I, I went on to do law at uni, uh, hence why, but I basically just put this paper in files all day for a week. Uh, and I also worked at a plastics factory. Um, some guy at the club, uh, a guy called Pat Hill, had a, had a plastics factory, like a moldings factory. And you just go in, press a button, the, thing, the machine would mold a bit of plastic for 30 seconds. You can't tell what this bit of plastic is either. It's just like some back of a printer or something. Put it in a box and repeat, and I'd, I'd do days of that, and sometimes do like 14-hour shifts of that, so just I'd build up a little bit of cash. Uh, but the idea was that for every week that we... Uh, Mills Barton worked at a landscaping company for the most part. Um, but the idea was that for the week we had worked, that would then pay for the week we sailed later on. Um, so we'd just do that all through the winter. And we basically saw each other more than we saw any other person, like more than more than family, more than girlfriends, just saw, saw Mills Barton most of the time. And we'd all share a room in, um, in Portland House. So we came pretty close and obviously got to know each other pretty well. Um, and we sailed together. 
consistently, just like we say, smashing out rabbit runs and, uh, and being borderline hypothermic, hypothermic uh, almost every day in Weymouth. You know, we go to like we go to the gym in the morning and do do like a bike or something, and we go for a sail for three hours, and then we'd come and then we'd go to the gym again just because there was not a lot else to do, and we didn't want to spend any money like going to the cinema or doing anything else. We we're so precious on our on our cash that we just put our heads down and did loads of training, um, which is really good. So we both got we both got really fast in the breeze, um, and I remember it was about that time. It was in the run-up to 2012, so Goody um, and Nick Thompson, and there were like some Canadians and Americans were in a bit of a training group in Weymouth. I remember doing rabbit runs with those guys, and me and Mills Barton were, were arguably quicker most of the time than you know than, than Nick and um, Nick and Goody in, in certain conditions. But uh, I mean, in a straight line, we were good. In the right way, sort of tactically, getting off the start line, we obviously weren't good, so we weren't the whole package, but. We definitely had some strengths, um, and so from that, that sort of translated really well into that that event in La Rochelle, because um, it was breeze on every day. It was big waves, um, and so it was just mainly just a speed game, uh, and we were both pretty tough. Though. Um, the guy who won it was Sam Meeks, um, as we most of us know. Uh, so he was there again, sort of in my youth career. Um, on that event, Mills Bar might disagree with me a little bit, but on that event, I... I think I had a short throw because I kept having meets in every single flight. Every time the fleets got split, it just kept being being me and Sam and then Mills Barton was free to go and win his races. Um, so he ended up, I would say, probably having a slightly better deal than me. But in the end, you know, he, he still beat me, so that's fine. Um, but yeah, I remember being quicker than me, quicker than Sam upwind, beating him to the windward mark by a considerable distance every time, going downwind and then just, putting the brakes on and then him catching me right up and me just holding him off at the, like, the bottom mark just to get around and make it to the finish ahead of him. Uh, but there were a few races like like that where he was rapid downwind. Um, and in the final race of that event ended up being Meech, Meech won the race. Bill Spark came second, Mark came third. So it was the one, two, three. The overall was the one, two, three in the final race as well. That's pretty uh, cool way to finish an event. What was sort of, was that sort of a, a trend throughout your sailing career that you weren't as quick downwind or...? Uh, it was better than the next. When I when I first got into the full rig, I was rapid uh, downwind. I thought it was really good, um, and I did, I wasn't slow downwind ever. I think at that point, looking back, it was definitely a nerves thing. Like I was definitely not feeling the boat and not like listening to the boat at all um, when we were sailing downwind. I just kept looking behind me, looking behind me, um, and sort of the more you try, the slower you go. Whereas you just need to you know let it let the boat do its thing a bit more. So looking back then, I don't think I was actually slow. I just think I, I was panicking in a way inside, just trying to hold that guy behind me. Yeah, it's a, well, he's not a slow guy either, which is makes it even more pressure on you. Looking back yeah. at sort of your, you know, your laser career, what would you say are sort of things that you would pass on advice to sort of to next sort of generation? Um, I think there's, a few things that I've probably learned since moving out of lasers. One of the things is, is for sure, uh, networking is actually a massive thing. Uh, and I'm not particularly extrovert or social at the best of times. Um, but when you're in sort of a tight knit laser squad, we're all just so sort of content with each other's company. And we're such a tight knit group that we almost excluded basically everybody else. And we just wouldn't care 
about other classes, other sailors, we just wouldn't care at all. Um, we'd just be pretty happy in our own group with our really outrageous, laddish banter and, and look after each other. And, and so you sort of really feel the effects of that when you step out of the class and you step out of laser sailing and you try and do other sailing or yeah, get into other classes. And you sort of know who these other people are in the other classes from the British sailing team, wherever else. But you realise that you've not actually really spoke to them at all, despite being in the same room as them, you know, previously. Just because we were so sort of engaged in our own squad. So I think for sure, if I was to do it again, I'd definitely make more of an effort to speak to more people. And I wouldn't say I was unfriendly at all, but I would make more of an effort to be friendly to other people. Um, because I think that, you know, experience shows, shows me now that that would pay dividends um, if you ever left the class to try and you know, open other doors elsewhere. Uh, so that's a pretty big one, I'd say. Um, and then I think when I was when I was a youth sailor, I think I was quite, I was pretty confident in my own sort of knowledge and ability. Um, and I didn't, I didn't listen to the lessons that, that some of the RA like coaches and specialists gave enough. Uh, I was quite, I was quite relaxed on things like nutrition. I was actually pretty terrible on things like nutrition a lot of the time. Didn't drink in anywhere near enough drink at all. Despite specialists saying that you'd need to stay hydrated and drink this amount for a day or whatever, I was used to just think, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, and not do it. I used to like, I used to not be addicted, but I used to love Pepsi Max and used to drink a lot of it. And, uh, and I remember being a farmer and like realizing that I hadn't prepared and didn't have my, my like go powder or whatever isotonic drink I had. So I, got my Pepsi Max bottle and like diluted it, you know, 30% Pepsi Max and the rest water and then went out sailing with that, which is obviously, obviously a terrible thing to do. But at the time I just sort of, I just didn't take the advice seriously enough and I should have cared more and made, you know, made the effort. And there are only small things like that, but they do all add up. And, you know, at that time when I was messing around doing that, you had the likes of Elliot who was quietly going around his business you know, really professionally, making sure he's all set up and ready and, and ultimately, you know, it, that sort of paid the returns for him. So I think, yeah, I think the networking is big and I think it's, it's easy if you're pretty good as a youth and you're pretty smart. You know, I was, I was a pretty smart guy and often thought I was smarter than other people sometimes. I think it's quite easy to to assure yourself that you're going to be okay. You know, like if you miss a training session, it's easy to assure yourself that uh, it won't make any difference just missing that one. I'll, I'll do another one some other time. And you just keep assuring yourself all these things until you, you until you fall back and then you realise it's too late. So, yeah, I, I definitely take the advice of the coaches a bit more seriously and, and the advice of the specialists for sure. Being a coach now as well and looking, you know, I think I've got some good things to say. Um, I'd be quite sad if there were some youth who listened to me and didn't take on the advice just because they thought they were smarter like I did. Um, having known, you know, having been there and done it, and all of these coaches have been there and done it, and, and know the mistakes they made, and a lot of them are coaches because they didn't make it all the way, which is fine, but that's probably even better because it means they've got so many more lessons of how not to do it, um, which I didn't realise at the time, but obviously now being a coach, I know. And as well, because, you know... I sort of coaches have surrounded themselves in that squad environment they've seen how the 
the successful ones in that squad have then, well, the even more successful ones have been, you know, that much more successful. And I remember something you told me, you know, this is five, six years ago when I first started um, laser sailing, was that it's not about, you know, two or three things you've got to improve. It's like a million different things you've, you know, small little things that you've got to improve. So it's a, a lot of things put together that will ultimately get you to be the best in the world, really. Yeah, I think we we used to we used to sort of have this performance review document, which I'm sure they they still do, which is you know breaks down all of the aspects of laser sailing and and where you need to be in, in all of them to be to be good enough. And uh, and it's immense. Like there's you know laser's a simple boat, but there's so many small bits to it. It's not just about the sailing; it's all about the other stuff as well. And if you don't have your your sort of house in order with your prep for all of your you know food and drinks, very easy example. But if you're if you're prepped like your accommodation or if you've got exams on your mind because you haven't revised properly and you're trying to do a sailing event whilst doing exams. And there's so many things, there's so many sort of variables as a youth sailor, loads of things in your life elsewhere that are pulling you here or there. Um, and really getting that prep in early and, and understanding what your challenge is going to be by the time the event season comes around is important because it will be too late either. I mean, something's going to give if, um, if you're doing it all at once and you haven't done the time. Um, to make sure it's all good and whether that be your saying or, or your studies or I don't know I mean looking back it doesn't seem to matter now but at the time I thought my girlfriend was pretty important <laughs> <laughs> and um, with sort of you were saying as well about the networking going out of laser sailing you've actually done some pretty cool stuff you know working with the Extreme Sailing Series and most recently with Wasp sort of how did you sort of get involved in that? Uh, yeah the the Extreme Sailing Series was my sort of first job out, or my first big job out of sailing, um, which I started. So I stopped sailing summer 2015 and started the Extremes in uh, in the new year in 2016. Um, and that was on like an internship basis um, in Cowes, which is, which is where I live now still. <clears throat> um, and, and that was really, you know, that was a really cool job, quite a cool project to be part of. At the time, it was probably when the, when the Extreme Sailing Series was in its prime, they had the, you know, the biggest title sponsors of Lentover and SAP and the biggest budgets. Um, and the boats had just changed from the Extreme 40s to the GC32s, so it just started falling as well. Um, so pretty cool time for that. And I got into that just through the internship program, just through, um, through like a written application. Uh, and I think for sure being a reasonably successful laser sailor was, was a massive part of getting me into that job and just having an understanding of the sailing. Uh, and I was working on the commercial team doing like sponsorship contracts and things. Uh, and I did a law degree at uni. So even though during the contracts part of my law degree, I was hung over or not there most of the time. I can't remember almost all of it. It was still sort of a, obviously a valuable asset to have to get into that job. Um, and then from that, ended up writing loads of sponsorship contracts for all, all sorts of different partnerships. Um, and I'm sort of I'm, I'm not a lawyer not a qualified lawyer because you have to do a lot more after your law degree but I was sort of the, the best of a bad situation in a way where nobody else could do it so I did it um, which was good because from that I meant I got a lot of experience um, handling contracts and, and some of them quite high, high value contracts there's a lot of pressure to make sure you, you obviously get it right um, so that was the sort of work part of it and then Luckily, for the sailing part of it, it meant that I got to do quite a few of the Extreme Sailing Series events, which is my first experience of sort of 
professional scene, I guess, first experience of following. Um, and it really was just the right place at the right time because if there was a team that didn't have enough people or often there would be a team funded by, by the local government or something as a sort of PR, uh, little PR project. Um, if you field a professional sailor for that, you've got to pay them, you know, 200, 300, 400 quid a day. Whereas if you've got an intern on your books who's getting paid basically nothing but gets to go sailing, so I'll be pretty happy, then you, you put them in. So then I got to have the chance of sailing on those boats a few times, which is a, which is a pretty cool experience. Um, and then sort of towards the end of it, I started doing work with Flying Phantom Class, uh, which are like an 18-foot falling cat. Uh, so they got, got incorporated into the extremes and there was an event in China, the final event that we ever did on the extremes before the project closed, um, where the, there was a French team that basically didn't get their visas in time. Uh, I was just there, meant to be working on the event, doing all the sort of background stuff. Uh, but this team didn't turn up, so I got to sail with, with one of my mates, uh, Hugo, who worked worked on the uh, on the extremes as well. So we were both meant to just be working, not sailing. We both ended up sailing on this flying phantom. I'd never helmed a catamaran in a race before. I'd never helmed a falling boat before. There were 12 boats. We came last. We came a solid 12. Um, but it was so, it was just so fun. And so, the, you know, the, the Extreme Sailing Series, there were a lot of difficult times with it because it was a project that was really struggling for budget um, as, as the years went on especially. But it opened up some, some really cool doors from, in terms of sailing experiences. Uh, so, yeah, definitely don't, re- don't regret that at all. It was a really cool thing to be part of. Yeah, I mean, coming 12th and, you know, when you're just having fun on a boat like that, you know, it's sort of the result goes out the window in a way. You know, you're just happy to be have the opportunity to sail on it. Yeah, and, and it was in um, it was in Qingdao as well, that event, which I'm sure for, for anyone who's done an event in Qingdao that's like a reasonably high-profile event, it's totally bizarre because there's just people everywhere. I mean... I'm, you know, China's obviously a very big country and the, the cities are pretty densely populated. So you're not really surprised, but there are just people everywhere, like, taking photos of you. The ceremonies they have are just massive, uh, like the press conferences and the prize givings and things. And you do feel like an absolute hero there because everything is just such, you know, they make such a big deal out of it. So it's a really cool event to do because you go from working in the background to being this, or at least feeling like this, sports superstar on this stage in front of um, front of like hundreds and thousands of people in the town or in the city rather so yeah it's awesome no I've never been there but it sounds like I need to go it sounds like good fun <laughs> you um, also mentioned that you you know did law at um, Exeter University what, there's quite a lot of people in sailing that go to Exeter why do you think sort of Exeter attracts more people uh, yeah, when I when I was choosing, I was basically I based my entire choice on proximity to Weymouth. Uh, so the choice was between Exeter and Southampton, and they're both pretty much the same distance from Weymouth in either direction. Um, and the reason I went to Exeter is because they did a better sports scholarship, so you got got two grand a year instead of I think Southampton did five hundred quid a year. Um, so that was basically the only reason the choice came came down to. But I'm, I'm sure that's why there's all the sailors there as well. Just because it's nearby, nearby to Weymouth, and and obviously Swinton and Exeter are both pretty good unis, so um, so it definitely wasn't. Yeah, it couldn't have been a bad decision to go to either of them. Uh, but yeah, there, there wasn't a particular love for Exeter, although I'm very, very glad I went there because it was it was really good fun and uh, a really nice place to live. 
you know it's a, it's a good place and i've never beat you in a laser but i remember one time and you probably don't want me to bring this up but you sailed a wayfarer at star cross just sort of down the river from exeter do you remember that yeah i do remember that yeah <laughs> that was uh not your not your finest race it has to be said no no i, I did it with my housemate joe uh who is a sailor and we just I actually knew him from college back in, in Essex where I was, I was living, where my family home is. And um, and we lost contact for a few years and then I was looking for a house in Exeter and just like looked on Gumtree for a flat and there's this Joe's face just popped up and I was like, oh, hang on a minute, I know that guy. Completely unrelated, nothing to do with the uni or whatever else. Then I lived with him in my third year of uni and what he was doing grand scheme. And so we thought, oh, yeah, let's try and go sailing at, at Starcross. Why not? So we got the club Wayfair, and it turned out I had, like, an iron center board that weighed, like, 80 kilos or something. And it was a bit of a dog, and there was no breeze. But uh, any sailing is good sailing, right? It's all time on the water. Yeah. No, it, it was, uh, for me, it was great. I, I felt like a hero beating you for, even though I was in, in the laser and you were in sort of basically a tank. But um, I also, yeah. people might not know as well, I also bought... Um, a laser off you back in the day and we went out and sailed at Exmouth and really you gave me my first sort of ever advice sailing really do you remember that one as well uh, pretty breezy day we're doing spend a lot of time trying to get you to go by the lee and stay sitting on the windward side so you're like locked in just sending it by the lee because the boat becomes you know you bear away onto a downwind course and the boat becomes a bit unstable but then if you keep bearing away hard by the lee, all of a sudden the boat just stabilises again. It's actually a really comfy angle that people were you know, naturally scared to go there. I remember that was one of the first things we did. And you capsize. I remember you're doing quite a few death rolls, but <laughs> hopefully it's a valuable, valuable session by the end of it. Yeah, well, I remember sort of when you said sail by the lee, and I, I remember looking at you, not knowing sort of what that meant. And so, yeah, so that was sort of my first ever real somebody giving me any sort of advice but that was great and you also um were talking about and you had a an old laser like a brown i think the color was and you said that you sort of went like wave surfing down at exmouth as well yeah i went to exmouth i went to thornton sands with it uh, which is a pretty popular surf beach uh, in north devon so i bought this laser off ebay for 300 quid and it's a yeah it's like a sort of brownie ready rusty color um, and had a load of, yeah, it was just really old and really rubbish. But I bought it with the sole intention of, of going boat surfing with it. Um, it sort of became a bit of a theme in our laser squad, actually, that whenever we were at hailing or where, wherever there was any sort of waves, I'd, uh, we'd all just, like, push the limit a bit and, and surf the boats down it just because it was great fun. Um, I went to do a training session with Mills Barton at uh, New Haven and Seaford, uh, which is where he lives in Seaford, so it's his, his home club. And then there's like a little breakwater there, and then you get these massive breakers, and it was this big day with a massive swell. And we, at the end of the session, we thought, oh, we'll go surf those. I remember surfing one, capsizing, snapping my top section, luckily managing to limp back out against the against the white water to make it sort of out back to safety before ending up on the shingle beach. Sailed into the harbour, quickly switched my top section, went back out, joined Mills Barton back out there to carry on boat surfing, went in for another wave, did the exact same thing and snapped another top section. So snapped two in, in two waves. Uh, and then I once, did, I once did a training session, a sort of 
summer holiday training session in Newquay, Bill Cornish and Matt Reed, where we sort of we knew we had to keep sailing, but we wanted to have a nice time as well. So we decided to join Newquay Sailing Club, which is, I don't know if you've been there, but it's it's like this tiny little sailing club on the harbour that doesn't really do any racing, just a few like over sixteen. But we joined there for a few weeks and went there, and it was a summer where there was just no surf like the entire summer. And any surfers must have been getting really frustrated. And the first day there was surf, uh, me and Rido were just surfing into Fistral Beach, which is probably like the most popular surf beach in the country. Yeah. Uh, the first, so we were surfing in amongst all these surfers, and obviously you can catch the wave on a, in a laser much easier than you can on a surfboard. So we're just stealing all these waves off these surfers, and people are going ballistic at us, <laughs> like whistling, punch, punching the side of the boat, like seriously aggressive because... <laughs> And uh, we probably didn't really have any right to be there. And the uh, the lifeguards were on the tannoy shouting from the beach, saying, uh, asking us to, to leave and get out of the way. So we just kept coming in for you know, a good half an hour or so, just whizzing in and out, taking all the waves from these surfers. <laughs> so boat surfing became like this thing. Um, so I bought this boat off eBay with the sole purpose of doing that. Went to Saunton on this day with, with Ben Cornish. And it was like six to nine foot forecast on so magic seaweed so before, pretty big before you bought this boat you're sort of in newquay you're using you know your your sort of race boats then were you oh yes yeah, so all of these other times with the race boat <laughs> and um, and which was obviously you know obviously had its risks hence the snap master new haven seaford and so, so i thought i'm going to do this properly this time i'll just buy a cheap boat and just it doesn't matter if it gets absolutely destroyed. So I went to Saunton this day, and it was like a 69-foot forecast, which is big. Um, and it was a, I think it was a southerly, but a really windy, like a 15-knot southerly maybe. So not mega, but it was perfectly cross-short. So it was a beam reach in, beam reach out. And I was getting, I didn't I didn't take a GoPro, and I should have. The boat's called Barry Barrel Basher. Um, but I was getting like full air, like whole completely like rudder tenable, completely clear of the water like going out again over these waves and then getting these massive surfs on the way in uh, where you know the sail would like you pin the sail right in because the apparel would be so far forward and the whole centre board's like almost out of the water like pushing it pretty hard um, and then it suddenly just seemed to get quite big I think the tide state may, may have changed or something and uh, I came in on this one and got just the white water like surrounded me there's no there's nowhere to go at that point your rudder just loses all the flow and you just end up capsizing the boat was getting rolled and I was like, I remember being sort of like stuck underneath it a bit, like scrapping at the surface, but just getting boat and main sheet and stuff. <laughs> and popped back up, and uh, the boat was just in bits, like the rig was all out of the side or snapped. And I was just clinging onto the sense board, just thinking like, oh, this is this is pretty bad. And then getting rolled and rolled and just trying to cling onto the boat to not not um, lose it, because I was obviously quite far out by this time. Uh, and then the next wave, the boat just washed away and just washed in shore. So I was just like bobbing around in the middle of these massive breaking waves at Taunton with like nothing to hold on to. And I remember just looking at the beach, just like praying to see Cornish, Cornish's like surfboard pop over the, uh, the lips of the waves to come and rescue me. And it felt like I was there for ages swimming in, like just thinking, where are you Cornish? Come and get me. And he said that he saw the boat wash in and he was running over to the boat to see if I was like stuck underneath it or something. Um, but anyway, I eventually managed to swim in and it was all good fun and the boat was in bits and I don't think don't think it really sailed again. Um, but yeah, it's something I definitely promote is, uh, is laser surfing for old lasers that don't have much use anymore. No, that's, that's a great uh, way of sort of getting sort of the old lasers out and 
having some great fun in it. It doesn't always have to be racing. I know, you know, I've done a fair bit of surfing the waves over Hailing Bar, and it's great fun when you, you know, you're just with a few mates and, you know, just enjoying yourself. Oh, didn't you, didn't you write up a boat at um, at <laughs> or something? I, I think well, I saw a video of it. Well, I I didn't, but I was I was in I, well I say I was involved. I was with uh, Joe Woodley and Hamish Eckstein, and uh, it was it was big, you know, big sort of easterly swell coming in, and you know Hamish is you know Mersey Island and uh, Joe Woodley's uh, Burfield. So you know they travelled some distance. Out, right, we'll go out anyway, and uh, well, we were, they were surfing the waves in, and then. Joe sort of turns to go back upwind and there's this massive breaking wave just came and just completely took the boat away from him and uh, he tried to swim after it but at that point sort of similar to you just the boat got away from him and Hamish in the end took him to on you know on his boat back into the harbour we drove around and the boat was just destroyed sort of thing but yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah you, look, you look back and they're great fun aren't they those oh. days yeah, I wouldn't do the sport if it wasn't for days like that, where it's big waves or big wind or something exciting. Yeah, no, it's um, you know, you've got to you've got to have fun, but at the same time, sort of have a backup plan if something does go wrong, knowing how to sort of get out of it, which to make sure you don't get hurt yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and just finally, sort of, just explain what you're doing most recently, sort of with Wasp. Uh, yes, I've just uh, well since October. I've, uh, I've been working for Wasp, uh, which is a really, really cool thing to be part of. Um, with the Extreme Sailing Series, it was sort of a totally different, different thing in the sense that the Extreme Sailing Series was an event funded by sponsors, for sponsors. It was all sort of very corporate. Uh, it's full of professional sailors, which is is arguably a good thing, but also I think sometimes for the sailors, it's more of a payday than sort of for the love of it although it's really cool sailing yeah, I think I think lots of people work on professional sailing events will sometimes argue that pro sailors are a bit high maintenance or a bit a bit stroppy or needy or whatever at times and it, it sort of sucks the fun out of it so the, the extremes are really cool but at times I sort of didn't really feel the love for sailing or didn't really think sailing was the winner because it was all so sort of high maintenance and and just sort of constructed in a way um, whereas wasp is the total opposite where everybody who sells a wasp is just doing it purely for the love of the sport um, and they're all just doing it in it for themselves you know it's not like professional sailing no one's there getting paid or no one's there trying to qualify for the olympics or anything they're literally just turning up because it's great fun to do and um, so that's like a really nice refreshing feeling uh, to be part of something like that where it's just all about the lifestyle and, and having a great time I'm sort of experiencing that myself as well. So I've got I've got a wasp here on the Isle of Wight, um, which is a and sailing club at the moment, and I've been going out on that. Maybe been out five or six times now, um, and it's so fun because it's just fully back to the drawing board. Everything that you thought you knew about dinghy sailing suddenly, pretty well for for a laser sailor especially, pretty much no longer applies. Uh, and, and so, you, you, like the learning progression is massive. Every time I go out, I just get way better because. I fully am, you know, the first time I went out, I was just capsizing all over the place and I was absolutely crap. Um, and now I'm sort of getting around some falling jives and, and things like that. So it's really, it's really fun. And the sort of downside of it is that I'm meant to be organising loads of international events, which is obviously quite a tricky thing to do at the moment. Um, 
So the downside is that I haven't actually managed to sail at any events yet or been to any events yet. Um, so there's lots and lots of work to do on all, all sorts of different things to do with the class. Um, but my, the main sort of bulk of work will be international events, which are hopefully on the horizon, but we'll, we'll see how we go. Yeah, all things being well, you know. Restrictions opening back up, hopefully those international events can get going. I'm sure you're sort of putting in the hours to beat, you know, another another laser sailor in Sam Whaley. Yeah, I've seen a few videos of him. He's definitely much better than I am. <laughs> but uh, if I can get some time in, then uh, then maybe I'll... You basically need to be able to do, do the manoeuvres well, and then you can start thinking about race. You know, as in you can start thinking about actual tactics and strategy and wind shifts and stuff. Uh, but until that point, until you're full attacking and full jiving, for the top of the fleet, for sure, you know, it's, it's all about just getting around the course. And it's, yeah, once you get those full attacks, full jibes, then you're, you know, towards the front and then you can think about the sort of more refined skills. Uh, but yeah, I've got a bit of a way to go until I'm anywhere close to Whaley, I think. Yeah, well, I'm sure sort of your competitive edge will not let him, you know, keep beating you. You'll make sure you make the inroads and... And one day you'll get in front of him. Yeah, and if I could just roll him a few times, you know, that might be enough to satisfy the ego. <laughs> What's it, rolling Whaley on the daily? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's been great to talk to you, Martin, and thanks for giving up your time. Is there sort of any sort of urge at all or sort of temptation to come and do a, an Ilku event in the future? Yeah, I, I've always thought about it. My dilemma is that I was crap in light winds, so I've probably not got any better in light winds. And I was good when it's windy, but I'm probably nowhere near fit enough. So I'll probably turn up and just be rubbish all around. But uh, but no, I, I definitely, I've definitely thought about it. I definitely like to have a go. Um, it's just the classic of things getting in the way. Um, like other, other sailing, I do all, so much other sailing on weekends and things that it becomes hard. And I'm also due to have a baby, which could pop out at literally any second. Uh, due date is this week, so yeah, life sort of has the you know classic gets in the way but uh yeah i would definitely be interested to come back and do an event at some point that's great to hear and best of luck with the baby maybe you can you know get mills barton out and both of you can sort of you know pip against each other in that sort of like you were saying earlier in the radials when you stepped up sort of just try and beat that age you know category people that you stepped up with you know maybe you two can just sort of battle it out together yeah and anything else is a bonus yeah, yeah that sounds, sounds like it Sounds like a plan. Yeah, ideal. Well, hopefully see you soon, and that would be uh, it'd be great to have you back out there. But um, thanks again yeah. for giving up your time, and uh, that's great. Yeah, wicked. Thanks, mate. Nice to talk to you. That's all right. And for those that are listening, make sure you do go and check out the other podcasts. Going to try and keep up with the sort of weekly episodes, so make sure you subscribe. But that's it for this week, and see you all again soon.